0: Welcome to episode 116 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Laurie Kim Alexander. Laurie Kim describes herself as an educator, organiser, activist, conservationist, abolitionist, naturalist and healer. Originally from Jamaica and now living in the Bronx, Laurie Kim has dedicated her life to working for social and environmental justice. Specifically, organising around LGBTQIA, Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. Laurie Kim's work in anthropology and her training as a biologist have helped her work against environmental racism in providing environmental education for people of colour and in working towards decolonialism and liberation through veganism for over 25 years. Laurie Kim works as a founder, facilitator, and organiser with organisations including Black Veg Fest and The Cipher. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 115 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalog. If you've just found us, hopefully these episodes are pretty much timeless. It's particularly useful to get reviews and ratings of the podcast on Apple or any other platform. It really helps the algorithm push our thinking and that of my guests out to a wider audience. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for the word sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Hey, Laurie Kim, how are you?
1: Hey, Jamie. I'm good today. I'm well. Thank good, you. Good.
0: Despite the rain in the Bronx. That's, right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join this series of sentientist conversations. It's great to get the chance to um, have a conversation. Um, I heard you uh, on our hen house. I was lucky enough to be a guest there a while back and your story was fascinating. So it's great to get the chance to explore these crazily broad questions with you. Um, And as you know already, it's a series of conversations about, I guess, the two deepest philosophical questions. Um, What's real? What should we believe? um, And what matters and who matters? So epistemology and ethics. And I have a clear bias because I'm trying to normalize and develop this really simple worldview called sentientism, which suggests that when it comes to thinking about what to believe, we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason. And when it comes to who matters and who warrants our compassion, our moral consideration that should be all sentient beings, any being that has the capacity to suffer or flourish. But I'm lucky in these conversations to talk to a wide variety of people who both agree or disagree with that worldview. So it'll be great to understand your story and where your thinking has got to now. But before we get on to those big questions, how would you best introduce yourself for people who don't know of your work?
1: Thanks so much for allowing me to to the grace to introduce myself the way i want (laughs) so um sometimes a bio can get really stuffy and stale so um you know the easiest way is my whole name is lori kim alexander Um, but you can call me lori kim and my pronouns are she her and we our and you know i'm a lot of things in a lot of spaces um, I'm an educator, I'm an organizer, an activist, uh, a conservationist, um, I'm a naturalist as well. And I also, am an abolitionist and a healer. And I use all of that kind of, uh, synergize everything into, you know, uh, black liberation practice, and that's always got a queer and vegan lens to it. So that's the, the type of things that I do.
0: Yeah, that's a great taster, and I'm sure we'll explore many of those themes as we go through these big conversations. Thank you. So let's start with the first of those questions, what's real or what to believe. So for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up in um, maybe a more supernatural, mystical, religious context, family and society, um, or one that was more naturalistic, maybe scientifically minded, maybe more atheist agnostic, and how their thinking has changed over time, if it has on you know what the universe is and how how we should best understand it so you can wind the clock back as far as you like to tell that story
1: yeah thank you so you know i grew up in uh kingston jamaica um in the west indies uh in the caribbean however you want to categorize it and um you know this is a black country and we didn't get independence from the uk until 1962. Yep. Was um, light, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, like most of the Caribbean actually, um, and lots of Africa, you know, we are was around the same time right after civil rights. So I talk about it in that way because I want to set the the, the baseline. Um, because being a black country, what that means is that we had to we had to really hold tight to our traditions, our histories that were muddled, um, removed, um, and you know, subsequently, and like also stripped, you know, because of the slave trade, because of slavery. Yeah. Um, you know, chattel slavery. And so that's never not going to be real, you know. Um and so what also is real is the fact that we're highly colonized. Um and I don't even know if there's anything as lightly colonized either, right? So and when I say highly, I mean that Jamaica was one of the um one of the countries where uh these slave ships would come and you know um offload human beings. Um uh, but it was really very restrictive because there was a lot of, you know, for lack of a better word, lawlessness by the traders, by what are known as pirates, all of that. And so there were these insane laws, just, just really stringent laws on, on Jamaica that really um, created a system that was highly carceral. And in that, too, a lot of missionaries saw opportunity to come in and bring their various and sundry versions of the truth which is you know some sort of religion and what happened there is oh in order also the 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 story goes and whether or not it is true um you know remains to be seen (laughs) but uh a lot of folks have written about the fact that Jamaica and, and a couple other islands um, in the Caribbean were where they would drop off the most warlike, um, you know, of the enslaved Africans. And so it was also with that people are coming into mind that they're going to domesticate these people, right, to make them work. That's the mindset, of, yeah. Right, all of these things. Um, you know, meanwhile, people are are just trying to survive. Um, and have their their own rich, deep traditions. But the only way to really practice them without um, you know being murdered or um, you know degraded and denigrated was to find ways to synchronize it into what these missionaries are bringing. So Christianity is very, very much a big part of of um, Jamaica. And for me, you know, I grew up Catholic and um in my household that doesn't mean catholic in the way that a lot of people around the world see it which is you know everyone has you know all these babies and all of these things no that's not the thing it is just really a form of worship that's like very structured and and steeped in rome yeah. um you know and a very white and blonde jesus you know my grandmother had um, a puzzle that she'd glued together or someone had glued together for her and and framed with this, this blonde Jesus that was in the living room that I would, uh, that I would see.
0: And how did that strike you as a child when,
1: yeah, as a child, I was just kind of like, this is not someone that I can relate to just like Santa Claus. I never believed in Santa Claus. So, um, you know, Again, giving you all this background to to have you realize that you know this is this is what I I grew up under. Looking at religion, um, not as the framer of my world, but as the framework I had to live under in order to go about my daily life, right? The yeah. like yeah. first communion, all of that, and so it's just like a
0: of- it's just like a machine, a social process, and you don't really have a choice but to just participate, that's just what you do, I guess.
1: Right, exactly. And so, you know, I would have to say rosary, all of these things, and I would do it as a punishment, honestly, um, at, for me, that's what it felt like. And I had to pray every night. And so I would, you know, I would pray to Jesus, like you asked Santa for a Barbie, you know? Um, so these are the things that I would do. So it wasn't until, um, and, but in, in my mind, in my in my head as a as a child, what I saw in the natural world did not reflect this idea that, you know, God created all of these things. I watched creation happen. I was one of those children that was like transfixed by all the little creatures that lived with us, you know, yeah. um, and so also, um uh, when I was by the time I was fourteen, you know, I'd been in this in the u s now a year, and um, I was really grateful to just start to meet new and different people um, and really start to, to work through the things that I'd been mulling around in my head as a child, which is this religion doesn't make any sense to me. It's, it's providing information that did not, you know, just it didn't work well. Um, I, I loved the idea of angels watching over us. I love the idea um, of someone who would die for you without knowing you i loved that yeah but the, the way that it was presented in these bodies that were foreign that was somehow i'm supposed to to hold as mine made no sense um i couldn't see them and i couldn't feel them they weren't who whispered to me you know um in my ear they weren't the intuition that i felt you know and they weren't the ancestors that i knew yeah and so i decided i'm not going to go to church anymore you know, and in Jamaica, we call it like you broke out, right? So I I didn't go to church. I came out, you know, at 14 years old, Um, I stopped eating meat, all of those things, because I could not, I could not um, equate this, this idea of, you know, um, just loving um, all beings Right? And loving non-humans and also eating them. And that's when I got really involved in animal liberation. So all the
0: changes at once, you basically just press press the button and said, let's do it.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. thank you. And so on this, and we'll come on to, because it's so hard to disconnect this question about what's real from the ethics. And you've already started to hint there at how you were thinking about non-human animals, for example. But while we stay on this question of what's real, um, how has your thinking changed since then? So you, I guess you you broke away from Catholicism. Where did you go after that? Because I've had guests who've left a sort of established religion and gone to another. I've had guests that left an established religion and become um, maybe spiritual but not religious. So they have a sense of sort of transcendence and spirit and connectedness, and you know a sense of the mystical and the magical even. But it's not about an established religion. Because of some of the institutional problems, and other people like me have just sort of followed a fairly boring path towards a naturalistic, sort of atheistic or agnostic. You know, I just believe in reality around me, and that's it. How how is your thinking on that front shifted? Is have you followed one of those paths or something else? How would you describe it?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that. So first of all, um, I don't think that's boring um, at all. Actually, that's very interesting to me, and to me, it, it's uh, it's something that I thought I. I followed too for a while so at first I was like no um that's when I first learned about what atheism was and I said yes I'm an atheist I don't believe any of this you know however spirit moves you you know so there is no way that the full flush of brilliance of the the beautiful striving and creation that um, is my ancestry, you know, couldn't come through to talk to me. So I would have, I would have these, I don't even know what to to call it. And I f- I feel like I get chills even when I think about it, like these conversations um, that I thought I was, you know, kind of, that was me talking to myself, but really, you know, there was something that, you know, when some, some, you, you say like something told me, you know, yeah, there's that something there's a something that was telling me, um, somehow, I would ask for things in my head, and it would happen. Somehow, um, I would, I would just make crazy decisions. I mean, wild decisions, you know, for things that I, I knew, I knew that wouldn't, you know, it just couldn't happen, but I'm gonna make it happen. And somehow it, it would. And so I started to, to really Look through, you know, what is what is the tradition that I came from? What are yeah. these things? You know? Um, and so I never, I realized I, I never really strayed away from thinking about the world beyond, um, looking at, you know, the, the space and time that we're in as a continuum that is attached to other continuums, right? believing in a multitude of verse of universes you know um when i that's when i got into science um i was always very very um into science but you know that's when i really started to understand that oh there's people who put numbers to these things you know Um, so a lot of people look at physics as you know just really boring science but to me physics is magic you know
0: and there's some amazing <laughs> mind-bending stuff going on in there, I tell you. So <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Like, not yeah. theory is wild, you know? Yeah. And so, I, to me, I cannot, I cannot separate. I cannot separate the two. So, I feel like I have this kind of hybrid of, you know, really being rooted in science yeah. and what I can see and what I know. These absolute facts and the absolute facts that there is so much more that is unknown that I know that I feel. Yeah. you know um so yeah that's that's what i do and i so i you know i i don't have a, a specific religion that i ascribe to uh because i've always kind of uh chalked that up to the fact that i'm an aquarius and we don't follow anybody's rules <laughs> however, <laughs> <laughs> however there's nothing that 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 feels good to me that you know um that i can hold to own solely but i do practice a lot of things that come from different African ancestral traditions um and do follow um a lot of those tenets but not strictly
0: yeah yeah I've got it yeah yeah in a in a in a queer way where you won't follow the rules you just <laughs>
1: exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly so We're it does everything.
0: <laughs> yeah so it does feel like you sort of you've gone back to some of those elements that you talked about maybe in Africa about Caribbean cultures that you know, were around and infused through the culture before Mm -hmm. colonial, frankly, the imposition of Christianity and so on. So you picked up some of those themes and reflecting them in your life. And would it make sense to describe that as, you know, a sense of spirit and connection and wonder and maybe transcendence and a sense of things that can't be known but that you feel? is is, It's a combination of some of, some of those things. Is there... A sense of a deity in the way you think, you know, as in a a sort of all-powerful being, or is it more a sort of sense of multiple universes and connectedness with other
1: entities? Yeah, um, I think that. mm, (sighs) So I think I don't have the answers, but I also think that think again that I know what I feel, and so. I cannot believe in one, all-powerful, all-seeing, um, you know, benevolent and sometimes malevolent being. Yeah, right? quite often,
0: quite often malevolent.
1: <laughs> right? Like you know, like all of these fair God. Like I, why? How? What? But God is love, though. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how know? the
0: creation of hell is consistent with. God being love is just one then, example, but yeah.
1: Exactly. Because then when you think about that, um, you know, all of a sudden there's, there's this altar who is, you know, incredibly malevolent and, and incredibly powerful. So I don't believe in, in that yeah. per se, but I do believe in the fact that folks can be harmed to the point of malice, the anger, and just horror, horror right? And that has to be true um, to me of uh, there's some some entities out there who who may be stuck in that. Um, I believe that. I believe in the power of my ancestors. I believe that if I look back um, and open up my vision, I can see thousands, thousands and thousands of Um, past energies, spirits, whatever you want to call it, that are connected to me deeply. I can feel it in my blood. And I do believe that some of those have exalted to the point where they've gotten so much knowledge by being around um, that you can call them deities. So I believe in a pantheon of of deities, but I cannot single one out.
0: Yeah, Yeah. thank you. No, that's fascinating. And it strikes me that as we move on to the next big question about ethics and morality, there's, a, there's a, I, I'm fascinated by how these two big questions relate because it, it strikes me that in many of the established religions, the sort of more formalized ones, whether it's Islam or Christianity or something else, often there is a deity. Uh, often there's quite a formula, formulaic structure of rules. Personally, it feels to me like those rules were generally written by Powerful men, hundreds if not thousands of years ago, and you can see that in the ethics that they drive through. And what those systems of thought seem to do to me, there is a lot of compassion there. There is community there. There is many good things there as well. There's love, unconditional love and so on. But there's also it strikes me that the the compassion is often constrained. So you know, only a certain team get the compassion. You're in the in group, you get the compassion. If you're not, you know, unlucky, and you might burn for eternity. Um and often the compassion is conditional as well. You know, we follow the rules, you'll you'll be okay. If you don't, woe betide you. So there seems to be quite a strong effect of on ethics from an established religious worldview often. And it's not all bad. Sometimes it can be good as well, but there's a danger of a warping of compassion.
1: Mm.
0: Now it strikes me with people who have a um a different flavor of, if you like, a supernatural worldview that is more about a spiritual connection and there isn't a single all-powerful deity and it's, it's less formulaic, That there's, there's, it seems to me that there's much less risk of warping of compassion or undermining of compassion because you don't have the rules that say, you know, we're good, they're bad, they should be punished. And you also don't have some sort of superordinate goal in the name of which terrible things can be done. You know, the, mm. the, the classical story of you know, Abraham and um, his son and was on the brink of killing his own son because God said it was the good thing to do. And that cuts to the heart of the challenge, I think, with some religious ethics is that their compassion isn't really about caring about the other for its own sake. Ultimately, you're really only doing that because God told you to do it. And if God tells you to do something that isn't compassionate, that's what you should do. I mean, so again, it's a little frustrating, but it strike. I don't know if that resonates with you, is that maybe the more established, formalized religions can have more of a dangerous ethical impact. And whereas a more broad spiritual sense, and there are so many varieties of that, has less risk of warping ethics? Am I being
1: too generous or do you think that that plays? Yeah, I I don't think I don't think that there's going to be a difference. I think it it's it's all depends on the person. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And it depends on the people and and the the way that collective, that formation, comes into being. You know, if there and and also what develops in that space too. You know, you could start out lovely, loving, compassionate, all of these wonderful things, um, and then, de- you know, um, degrade into like a toxic space because there was harm somewhere that wasn't talked about, I wasn't handled. I see the the the, the biggest potential um, for more compassion being in um, in the practice itself, like how you did, how the, the people define the practice. Yeah, you know, I don't believe that. Say Christianity, which is what I know. I can't speak about. Um, I can't speak about anything else that I don't really know well, but um, in terms of the the single deity structure. Right, yeah. but I can tell you, I don't believe Christianity was built with compassion in mind. I I believe that it was it was really developed as a, you know, um, in in a way to tell a story to make sense of the world, but also to have a a system of control. You yeah. know, um, yeah. yeah, as gregarious beings, you know. Let's just be really real. As, as the types of animals that we are, we need, we tend to think we need, let's say, uh, a system, a structure uh, to, to the world and to organizing ourselves in groups. And what can happen there though is again these toxic um interpretations. So you know, not to tell people that if you're a Christian, you're wrong, right? But to say like, really interrogate the practice now, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. because just like something something more compassionate can get toxic, something toxic can can be made more compassionate. I don't know if that answers the question
0: it does, I like it, and I think and I think it's important to um apply that test to people with this sort of purely naturalistic scientific worldview as well, because you see the same diversity of challenges there, right? you can you can find rationales for homophobia and sexism and racism and anti-semitism and worldview bigotry in Christians. And you can find other Christians who are vehemently against all of those things and universally compassionate. I think you can find all of those bad things in people with a completely naturalistic, atheistic worldview as well, and people who are vehemently against it. So yeah, so, well, I th- so I think you can see the influences sometimes, but I think you're, you're right. It's not, it's not a sort of deterministic drive. It's about the practice of each individual and and, and how they put that into play, thank you so I think we do you know differ in terms of our our worldviews, but even even the way you describe that, there's still quite a lot of overlap with some of my the things i I feel too, so that sense of transcendence and connection, that sense of possibility of you know many worlds that you said uh, you know there's schools of thought within modern physics that replicate that um uh, many of those senses, which some might describe as spiritual experiences. I feel those too, even from a quite a hard-edged naturalistic scientific worldview. So I think there's interesting overlaps between the way people feel and the way people connect with the universe. Um even if the actual underpinning worldviews are, are very
1: different. But I think just like art is there's no there's no science without art. Um I think that there's also no science without soul right um and we are absolutely um, minds in a body and our minds can do things outside of our body that we're just now starting to to understand, even just the tiniest bit of it. So, yeah, I think that's why we have we have these feelings, you know, yeah. um, it, it's impossible not to.
0: Thank you. Well, let's come on to the second of these crazily big questions, um, what matters and then who matters? Again, for most of my guests, this is a story about originally how they grew up and how they started to think about ethics, often you know, originally in quite a childlike way, but then over time, how did that change? And there's two parts to this question, um, and I shouldn't really ask them together, but I'm going to do it now and you can decide how you want to navigate through it. So the first one is, you know, what matters in terms of what is good and bad? What are right and wrong? What are those concepts even mean to you given your worldview and the second question is who gets to count who, who who warrants our compassion who should get moral consideration and that's what again a fascinating journey to hear people go through as they think about you know myself my family my community you know, and and how that scope of moral consideration evolves and changes over time so there's two crazily broad questions but i'll yeah let you Talk us through the story of how you think about your own ethics and morality.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, So, I, you know, as a child, I grew up eating meat, meat and fish, and all of, you know, I my mother would always get mad at me. Why are you dissecting your food? Because I would be pulling out veins and, you know, um, cartilage and fat and all these things, and and I'd see it as like this is. This is a body here, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um and it was too much for my my mother and my grandmother. They just couldn't handle it. <laughs> like, why are you you know, like this child won't eat. <laughs> um and so as a child, like I, it took a while to make the connection between, oh, this is a body. And I made the connection when I finally figured out how they slaughter, um, how animals are slaughtered, you know, and um I, I saw it happening, and so that still didn't stop me from from eating meat until again for uh, from stopping eating meat until I was 14. But when I did that, it was because I found other people who felt the same, and I wasn't made to feel strange about it. I finally felt like, oh, you know, I I'm not alone. I'm not a weirdo. I can do this. And other people are doing it, and they're not dead, you know. <laughs> yeah,
0: amazing, amazing,
1: <laughs> right? Because uh, yeah, that was the other thing, like, oh, you're gonna starve. That was the the other conversation that my my mother would have with me. Um, and so, uh, my ethics have always leaned towards, the, you know, the those of us who are who are in the, facing the most harm. Um, and so, for me that that's that's where I always go back to who is who is the most um, harmed by the this system this person this you know space whatever who is going to be the most harmed, and who has been left out of the conversation around how we deal with this harm yeah what's that and that and that
0: concern for the ones who are being the most harmed did that come from a sense of justice and fairness and wanting to resist the oppression, or was it coming from a place of compassion and empathy for the victims, or or both? And and did that vary depending on whether we're talking about humans and non-humans or
1: I think that over the years it it has developed um differently, but it, it was always both, right? Yeah. You cannot have justice without compassion in some way, right? Um, like I don't believe in the death penalty because I don't believe in the power of the state to kill someone for killing someone yeah. I don't believe in the power of the state period you know um, so there's also that but what has evolved though you my I think also as we get older we start to understand the nuance of of life and living it and so now when I when I think of things and again um, I'm evolving right um when i think of 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 who who gets the compassion i cannot see a world that transforms without everyone getting it even yeah. the people who are the most harmful even the people who misuse their privilege even the people who you know are, are unrepentant in their in in their embracing of evil, you know, or what we consider like something that's wrong, right? Um, so that to and that
0: and that and, to... and that's a really hard step to take. And, and yes. I'm not sure, and and I'm, I don't think many and many people I don't think have taken it because they will talk about universal compassion and they'll talk about resisting all oppression, but they they, they can't bring themselves to feel compassion for the perpetrators. And and I, I you can understand that, but it's not truly universal unless. Unless it's universal.
1: But... Yes, absolutely. And it's taken me a long time to get there, Jamie. It is so hard. It is so hard. You know, as a survivor of very, um, very storied and different types of violence, it is very difficult to sit here and say to you that I will find a way to hold the people who have enacted violence against me. Right? Um, and that doesn't mean that that's my job in life, yeah. also, so I want to make sure that I'm clear on that because it's very easy for these words to be used you know to to continue to perpetuate harm, so you know, and then also the truth is that black femmes in the world are routinely the bearers of the emotional burdens of morality, you know and i'm not I'm not here to do to do that yeah. or or, you know, or uh, open roads for anyone else to be to be that. So what I'm really saying, though, is that what I'm learning as um, within the work that I do now, what I'm learning is that it takes a, a lifetime to really understand the amount of harm that we do to each other. And it takes it just a, probably another lifetime to understand the ways in which that that can show up in each person. And so taking that into consideration, you know, um, I'm really working hard to give folks, to give folks the grace that I need. Right. However, that doesn't mean that um, we're going to excuse people. You, there's ways to hold people accountable that is generous to you and to that person as well. Yeah. You know, I I believe in
0: that. And and having compassion even for perpetrators doesn't mean appeasement and it doesn't mean weakness and it doesn't mean that you allow or enable that harm to continue. I think you're right. It can be done. You can hold people to account. You can still have justice. You can still have firmness and clarity and ethical clarity, but still maintain a universal compassion. But like you say, it's hard work.
1: Absolutely. And it also doesn't mean that you don't defend yourself. Yeah. Let's also be clear there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you need to have compassion for yourself and the victims too, and that may even require, you know, quite strident, harsh actions in some situations, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: And so, And you, you talked about that quite natural sense of your compassion went beyond other humans to other animals too. Did, did that come from early experiences, or was that something you just always just intuitively felt that they are moral patients too that you know harming them matters
1: yeah um i think it was both things i think it's something i intuitively felt, but something that my growing up i saw so much i was always i was the proverbial tomboy right i was always just really dirty (laughs) just you know running around barefoot all the time um getting into adventures all of these things, and I would be the one girl with the boys. And um, when that happened, (laughs) um, you know, these boys would, we would, we would be in the same mindset um, to the, the point is to have fun. But for sometimes their idea of fun was killing something or someone else, you know, and that, that didn't make sense to me. So I would have to always, I was the voice of reason I tried to be, you know, often I was uh, shouted out or ignored, um, you know, so they they would be practicing their slingshots. And we have, I don't know if you realize, but the Caribbean is a throughway for migratory songbirds, so that we have birds that are endemic who live in uh, Jamaica full time, but also pass through. And so these glorious birds are like beautifully colored, beautifully singing birds, you know. They, but they're little, and so that's a, a nice target if you're learning how to, you know, uh, shoot a slingshot, right? Yeah, yeah. And so um they would they would be practicing and trying to kill these birds and sometimes succeeding, and my heart would break. I would cry, you know. And but of course I couldn't let them see me cry too much because it was like, oh, you know, ah, yes, why we have this girl here anyway, you know? Um, so that was really one of the things, and then. When I was about six or seven, living in um the countryside in Jamaica, we went to go to um this woman's house to get a cake. My mother and I, and we drove up, and my mother's going to get the cake and as we driving up, there's a goat uh, that is strung up um you know by their legs, and um we realized that position is for slaughter and my mother Quickly ran as fast as she could, got the cake, and we got out of there, you know. But that, like hearing those screams, was too much for me, you know. Um, and so, that I think just being up, being so close to nature, I didn't have a lot of toys. Um, you know, in Jamaica at the time, we had one TV station. So, um, and it didn't come on all day. <laughs> so <laughs> I was outside, I was playing. With spiders and lizards, and you know, um, all of these other species and in interspecies communication all the time, you know, and I could not imagine anyone not seeing them as whole, you know, why would you not, you know, um, and so again, I was, I was always, it's not that I was made to feel bad about it, but I was always made to feel. Different about that feeling when I realized I knew in my heart that to me this is the only way I don't understand, it's just obvious, know? yeah, yeah, it was yeah. an obvious thing. So, um, you know, I was I was grateful to, to come to uh animal liberation space in that way, but then actually, it usually just happens in reverse where people come to social justice space and then find animal liberation space. But I found it the opposite because I did not find full compassion there, right? I found high key racism, homophobia, you know, um, seriously deep commitment to patriarchy in the space. And um, I was young and that hurt me so much. And through that though, I was able to find movement space. I was able to find Black liberatory spaces. I was able to find um, spaces that, um, you know, were womanish space um, and also spaces that are trans and queer, you know, um, that are Black and indigenous spaces as well. And so there's where uh, we see true generosity happening because we always hold each other when um, we're in we're in the fight against oppression. We hold each other really well when we're the ones that we're working to liberation for. You know, yeah. And so, yeah. but again, because we're we're doing that work, it doesn't mean that there's not there's not spaces where there's a blind spot, and oftentimes where the blind spot is is for non humans and is for Earth, also
0: yeah you know? yeah and and that's what it would be fascinating to come on to that now in our you know the final question we ask, which is how can we make a better world because you've been a biologist and anthropologist and um uh, environmentalist, but your activism covers so many different dimensions, and you talked already there about a, a real challenge in so many different parts of the activist world where They're very focused on a particular topic or a particular agenda that they're normally right about. You know, they they understand it, and they've. But that focus maybe has led them to neglect or obfuscate, or sometimes even perpetuate other forms of oppression. Um, So you've talked in many places, and you talked there about coming into the animal liberation movement and hitting some of those social justice problems and seeing them going on within the movement. Um, There's another. I think, analogous challenge going on and has been going on for years in another area that I'm vaguely familiar with, with the sort of atheist, secularist, skeptic movement as well, which has you know, been pushing for you know, equal rights for non-religious people and challenging blasphemy laws and trying to resist uh, religiously motivated discrimination and you know support all of its aims. But that movement also seems to be really struggling with multidimensional social justice not just as a cause, but actually within their own movement. So there's, you know, there's a challenge in the animal liberation movement. There's a challenge within the atheist and so in, in the atheist and secular and free thinking movements, if you like, the rationalist movement. And it's also a challenge in the environmental movement as well, because as you say, you know, the environmental movement has a massive blind spot around non-human animals and particularly animal agriculture and its role in environmental and climate damage. How do you feel about that challenge of Allowing groups to focus where we need priority without making other problems worse and perpetuating other problems. But on the flip side, how do we avoid having a sort of total liberation or against all oppression stance that is so broad that it flattens difference and maybe hides diversity? And I don't know, it's a crazily broad question. What's your sense of how we can best go about all that?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I, I believe in tenets of total liberation, right? I yeah. don't think yeah. it's possible to to have a liberatory space if you're not seeing all the people in it. You know? Yeah. Right? Um, and so I think that what happens a lot of times is that we get so caught up in and we always say in the weeds, right? We get caught up honestly not not in the weeds but we get caught up in the soil like cr- like i feel like we're, we're counting grains of dirt a lot <laughs> yeah. of the time yeah. you know um but i do believe that in that spaces need to to interrogate their their in, interrogate their integrity right and also interrogate your mission oftentimes we write these beautiful mission statements and walk away from them. we plast them on our websites and all of these things, but at no point, you know, or maybe yearly, you know, at whatever retreat we do, um, we'll come back and be like, oh yeah, that was a mission, huh? You know, Um, but if you can't, if you can't operationalize each of the sentences in there, under uh, with with the the information from everybody, right? Um, then it's not going to happen. And so I don't know. I may be rambling now, but I feel as though um, you know, like I wrote I wrote a piece um, in uh, Queer and Trans Voices: um, Achieving Liberation Through Anti Oppression, and I wrote a piece that said, "Don't include me." right um and so it's like, what are you talking about? we're supposed to be inclusive no if you have to include me you left me out right um and it, also if you have to include me that means that you had a checklist yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right yeah. and if yeah. you have a checklist that means that you did not have the people in your in, in your corner at your side um you know in the first place and so then your mission was false to begin with so we really have to um not only be be kind right um and but stop using kindness as an opportunity to um to push an agenda that is too narrow yeah um so i don't i don't see us flattening out if we if we bring folks best the best foot forward from everyone,
0: you know? Yeah, I like that, thank you. And it's, it strikes me there's always sometimes also a bit of a presumption in this sort of extension and inclusion, it's like, you know, I'm doing the, I'm doing the including, I have my list, you know, I have the and it, and and it relates, because through these conversations, I've, I've shifted the way I talk to a degree as well, because I used to talk a lot about the sort of, the moral circle and mm. how the moral circle expands out. And, and I, I think that's a useful concept but again, there's an implication that, you know, me and my group are in the middle and that we are extending generously to others. And, you know, and, and it's like, well, okay. So, I, and that's partly why I don't really talk about a moral circle anymore, just because of those implications. I talk more about moral yeah. scope. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I think that's one of the things that's implied in this idea of sentientism, this granting moral consideration unconditionally and unquestionably to every sentient being, any, any being that can experience suffering gets to matter. Um, is that it's many people will focus clearly on the non-human animal mm-hmm. implications of that, i.e. completely ending animal farming and exploitation, just because that's the topic that so starkly clashes with default human behaviour and social norms today. But it also includes an explicit stance about how we think about other humans, all of whom are sentient beings too. It has implications for our interhuman ethics as well. And as that starts off, anti-oppression, total liberation, all humans are sentient beings and so on and so forth. But and I, again, that doesn't need to flatten it. It doesn't mean everyone is the same. We don't need different considerations. We don't have different interests. We don't have different needs. We don't have different right. beliefs. And also we don't need to take the same sort of advocacy and change approaches in every field and with every group either. I mean, no. you, don't, you, can, you can have a very generous moral scope and recognize dazzling a, a, brain bending diversity within that across species and within the human species
1: yeah i mean you have to i mean so so first of all the other thing is uh, that i don't like about inclusion is that not everybody wants to be with you yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know i don't want to sit at some tables a lot of tables actually i turn on a lot of tables
0: yeah um i might be doing my own thing with a different group of yeah
1: Right, exactly, because there's there's spaces that are sacred, right? Black spaces is sacred, you know? um trans gender, nonconforming, non-binary space, that's sacred, you know? um and it's it's necessary, and, and it's it's important to me that folks stop looking for themselves in those spaces. If it's not yours, it's not yours, and move on. But if it, you know what I mean? And so that that's where this the, that's where the internalized oppression comes in. And that's where um, the buying in to oppression comes in. If you have to, you know what I mean? Um, so and that's also where harm harm comes from, too. So there's there's also that. Um, another thing I was going And, to and I think too,
0: just and on okay. that point, I think you can you can have moral consideration for all sentient beings without insisting yeah. they're all in one group with you. Can, right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's where I was going to go. Because also, you know, if we take take biology, for instance, right? It is a study of life on the planet. At no point does biology say that one, um, it has defined all life on the planet, but two, that all life on the planet exists in the same way. You know, in fact, the term biodiversity explains just that. The necessitation of like the necessities, right of all of each of the species um, that exist in an area, right, for the functioning of that ecosystem and the the necessity of that ecosystem next to a different type of ecosystem. So oftentimes I talk about an ecosystem of movements, right? Um, they they can move together and share share information between spaces too, you know. To me, that's, that's a better way to look at, at, at inclusion and morality, too. And I also think it is so rude. It's a little rude of us to think that we also can speak for animals. That happens all the time. You know, to speak up for animals. Okay, did they ask you? You know, when was the last time that you had a true conversation with a cow or a chicken? You know? Um, and when we actually do get to have those conversations, our lives are changed by it. So instead of putting ourselves, but to me, that's speciesism as well, you know, so instead of putting ourselves at the center, what we can think is, you know, let me help facilitate conversations with, you know, cows and chickens, right? Um, And those are always going to look different. So I do think that we really need to, to, remove ourselves this is like when we started this conversation you said you know like some of these religions were were mostly started by you know groups of of men with power to you know get more power this is the same situation so you have to remove yourself from you know the center of power you know yeah in as many ways as possible
0: and i think there's there's a the the risk there and i see someone some people following this path is that they they step out and then abandon the the victims. So there's, there's almost a degree to which they say, you know, I'm so skeptical of our ability as humans to do good in the world, you know, human hubris and look at the harm we've done. Maybe we just mm-hmm. need to back away and step out and we can't speak for the non-human animals. And that's a mistake too. You can find the middle yeah. ground where you can have compassion, you can advocate, you can try to help and assist and support, but without putting yourself in front and representing where it's not appropriate or you know uh, putting your own interests and needs in the place of the needs and interests of others but um, it can be a tricky Absolutely. balance sometimes but i don't think it's that hard really no
1: yeah it's just it just takes it takes rigorous practice everything's a practice no yeah you know yeah life is a practice
0: <laughs> so one one thing i'd be fascinated to understand is one generally um how do you think about making positive change happen in different spaces? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, if you want to draw on some of your work with the Cypher or Black Veg Fest or your environmental work, you know, that would be um, fascinating to hear. But I guess there's a few different, there's so many different case studies. There's different communities where you might take a different approach to advocacy uh, and a different style. I'd be interested in your thoughts about, just very generically in the US, how you see positive change happening both for humans and non humans. But I'm also interested in your sense looking back at Jamaica, at how you think positive change might happen there differently again for humans and non human animals. So again, another crazily big question, but how do you think about, you know, effective advocacy and driving good change and in, in those very different contexts?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is we don't have enough time to explain that. But second, yeah, sorry. no, that's, that's OK, because um, second, I think it's important to bring these questions up over and over again, you know, um, and that way we make time. Right. So um, I think that it's important to let the folks doing, doing the work for their, for their folks do that work. And that's why. So I'm going to try and make maybe four different points on each thing that you said so so with black veg fest right um i started with black veg fest just saying like hey i'll come through and do whatever you know and i didn't i i'd been there for the first festival the the second festival um in brooklyn um and then you know i came on i was asked to come on as an organizer and in in black veg fest space we do work specifically for our folks who are black indigenous and other people of color but our focus is black liberation so our focus is black folks you know um and what that means is that we are going into the areas where our folks have been routinely the most stepped on um by the oppressive structures and systems that we live under, you know, I will always quote Bell Hooks and talk about white supremacist, cap- capitalist, imperialist patriarchy. Right? Um, those are heavy words uh, that always need to be brought into space and and to be defined. And I'm not going to define them here right now. But yeah. um, when when we do that, we're talking about folks who are poor, who are in, in low income areas, folks who have a whole wealth of knowledge that is routinely denied, and so we we work with with those folks to you know uh, talk about things from a very meeting folks where they're at level you know you could call it popular education, whatever you want, and uh, speaking to their needs specifically you know and so when we're talking about what is happening with uh, Dairy cows or um, factory farming. We're talking about it from a perspective of understand where everyone is on the continuum of that food production and what happens to you at the end, yeah. you know, um, in terms of health issues and things like that. And then we are also in other movement spaces where we are talking specifically about how do we move the boot off of Black folks' neck, you know, and we're doing it in a way I, I I said yes to organizing because I had never been in a Black space where folks intentionally said, we are working to do this work. We are working to center all the folks, all Black folks, you know, and that doesn't necessarily happen a lot in spaces. So there's there's that. Um, But it takes talking to the people and to me remembering, again, following um, a bell hook strategy that all folks hold knowledge. You know, you're not here to preach to people. That doesn't usually work well, you know? Um, And so I'm developing this formation of the cipher and we're working, you know, to build a a trans and queer Black femme-led collective that holds all queer and trans, Black, indigenous, and people of the global majority, people of color, specifically holds us um, and uses gender equity as a guidepost, but it's always about black liberation. It's always about um, a vegan construct, right and talking about environmental um, justice and food justice in a way that meets and trans and queer folks where they are, you know and when we have trans and queer spaces, we're, we're talking about how, how we keep each other safe. We're talking about survival, but we're not talking about survival as it pertains to the, the whole world of the ecosystem that we're in, which is climate change is real and it's happening right now, and it's gonna hurt us first. We have to talk about that. And we have to develop strategies for more than resilience, you know? And as people who are harmed, how can we possibly perpetrate harm? Um, by not including non-humans into our conversation. Um, and then also the fact that, again, we're we're crunched under by that same system all the way through the system. So it's, it's deepening these conversations to tease out all of these things. And in that deepening, we move the conversation forward and elevate it again and again and again, you know? And that's happening in the US, but I think it's happening a lot Um, I've seen it happen a lot in in the UK. It's happening um, a lot in Germany with a lot of the Black beings I've seen doing work there. Um, And in Jamaica, this is happening too. There is a a wonderful resurgence of, um, you know, Jamaican folks taking the land back. That is a beautiful thing, you know? Community control of land is a huge issue Right, it's, it is um, unfortunately the product of colonization, and, and remembering that the entire world um, has been affected by this this reality of the past six hundred years.
0: Yeah. You know, and um, land and land ownership is one of the starkest ways you can understand how that history is present in the in the in the, in the present day. And it's it's interesting because because even even in the UK, you mm-hmm. can see the flip side of that based on who owns the land even here now exactly. and, and, and we were the colonizing country the colonizing empire but you can see the patterns of that colonization in who has the wealth and who owns the land
1: here absolutely absolutely and then exactly what they do with it too yeah what is a lawn you know I'm like a lawn is not a, a lawn has to do with you know a royalty and you know who like separating yourself from you know the serbs right so um but in 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 general in Jamaica that's what's happening because we're we're noticing um you know this neo the neocolonization neoliberal strategies that are being used and have torn our country apart you know um and a lot of that is because we tried to do something you know um so the IMF had came and decimated us um world bank came and decimated us um you know and it's just like other forms of colonization so they'll, for for countries like jamaica to me the the way forward to real change is to listen to the jamaicans and and use use the the truths that we've seen happen you know the, our histories our lineages of, you know, what we call in Jamaica, like you say you cotch on the land or you cotch somewhere, you sit on the side of a, a seat, you're cotching, yeah. right? And so a lot of the the, the land use is, is people who don't actually own that land, but produce the the products that are making the country money, you know? And so it's upending that structure. Again, who are, is being the most harmed? Put them in the front. Give them the things that they need, you know, to thrive. And um, also, looking at the the facts of science, a lot of the science that is coming, you know, from and to Jamaica right now is not happening in a, in a way that is sustainable. It's one off studies and things like that. And Jamaica is a hotspot of biodiversity. Yeah, you know. But yet we are high on the list in the world for deforestation. So how does that equate? You know, um, it equates because tourism is the number one money maker, and so we're going to sell ourselves out cheap. We're going to, you know, cut down mangrove forests that would protect the country from hurricanes, um, provide space for. Um, Fish and invertebrates to you know to develop and thrive and grow and become you know the bountiful ocean um, life that we have, but we take that out and we decide to put um, you know uh, docks for cru- cruise ships or the next all-inclusive um, Sandals hotel, you know yeah. something like that. So um, it is it is talking about wealth. Um, in a different way looking at wealth as the as the land as as the folks um as the knowledge that we hold as our histories you know our true histories right yeah. um right not the not the what is told by the victors right yeah. um <laughs> yeah and so you know it's it's a focus not on on money but on 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 the wealth of of who we are and what and what we are yeah you
0: know? so it's it's putting the people with the greatest need at at the center of the solutions and the knowledge and it's while focusing on th- their needs and their interests it's also trying to take an approach that is against all other forms of oppression as well and again that can that can seem like a difficult thing to do and i think that's why some people who want to focus on a particular single issue sometimes push back In my amateur experience, what you find is the more broad your anti-oppression stance is, the more complementarity you find. You know, and one of the topics that you and I take very seriously, animal agriculture is just a great example of that. You know, transitioning Mm -hmm. to end that would be good for humans, it would be good for non-human animals, and it would be powerfully good for the environment we all share. And I think you find that even with intra-human ethics as well. You know, the more generous and more consistently anti-oppression The more win-win situations you find and the more power you can build yes absolutely one there's one final question i wanted to ask you and this is a difficult one before i let you go you've talked about the power and the threat and the damage of patriarchy and colonialism and they have you know insidious threads that run through the present day in in many respects and i think most people would be very comfortable saying yeah those are things that need to be countered and rooted out and pulled back you talked about capitalism as well, and that's another fascinating topic because people who think of themselves as sentientists have a radically broad variety of different views on economics and politics. So there are anarchists and communists and socialists and and some people who think we could get to a more compassionate capitalism where if consumers and producers and regulators all have a sort of sentiocentric compassion where we care about other humans and we care about non-humans, you could re-engineer capitalism without having to... As my previous guest, I haven't released it yet, said, no, burn it all down. So what's your sense about economic systems and whether we need some you know, much more revolutionary approach or whether there is a path to a sort of compassionate conservatism where we've ripped out all of the bad stuff? What's your sense about that? How
1: radical do we need to be? I, would, I think we need to. <laughs> I don't think it's radical to be fully radical yeah I think yeah. that that honestly, that's the only way we're going to go. I do not. There is no way I just don't see it that capitalism can be reengineered for good. Capitalism is a harmful construct. You know? I'm going to always also quote Audrey Lords that uh, talking about the master's tools, you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. It doesn't work like that, you know. Um, even if those tools let's also be clear were fashioned after the tools that you had. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, because there's also a co-op thing that happens all the time, you know? Um, so I can't tell you what's best. Right. Um, but I, I can say that this isn't it. Yeah. And I don't, I just don't see any way to, to tear apart something that turns whole beings into units of production, yeah. to make it more compassionate yeah it it feels absolutely possible
0: and i and I don't know the answer either, but it's 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 difficult because the most positive reading of capitalism, if you like, and I know you won't like a positive reading of it, but the most the most positive way would be to say, look, in a way it's about choice and freedom and fairness and opportunity but the reality of the way it operates today is you're saying is that it it just seems to lead to commodification and exploitation and over concentrations of power and a warping of democracy and politics and yeah so you know some of my guests think there is a way of you know rework it, and many of them i think are with you and say look it's those those problems are just so endemic to its structure that um anything we need would be so different that it wouldn't really it wouldn't warrant it even having the same name so uh, uh, yeah. but yeah a complicated topic and how overall how does that leave you feeling as you think about different cultures and different groups and all of these different intersecting challenges we're facing D- do you feel some sort of optimism optimism for the progress we might be able to make or are you do you have a more sort of pessimistic cast of mind or neither and again, thinking about intra-human ethics and non-human animal ethics as well.
1: Yeah, um, I have to always believe that we will win. Yeah, right?
0: yeah.
1: Um, and um, the we I'm talking about is oppressed beings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the we is you know all all of the identities that I hold, and all the folks who I know are, are my siblings um, in oppression so i believe in liberation i cannot not believe that I, that liberation will happen in my lifetime otherwise what's it for you know and that means that you know we we find we find ways to to continue on the path with the, the knowledge that there's going to be those days when you don't see it you know but that doesn't mean that that's going to define what happens in the end you know yeah
0: Thank you. Well, that's an inspirational, uplifting note to finish on. Um, yeah, it's been a, a real inspiration to talk to you. It's been fascinating to understand your journey and to dip into these crazily big questions, so thank you. What's the best way of people following you, learning more about your work? I know you, you don't do much social media at the moment, but um, where would you point people for the main activism you're working on at the moment? And I can always yeah. update the show notes later on, so when you've got your social media up and running, let me know, and I will go back and include the, de- include the uh-huh. links.
1: I absolutely will let you know. Um, yeah, so that's coming um, on the cypher end. And yeah, I'm pretty incognito right now on the socials, but you can always find me at at Black VegFest. Um, you know, my information is there um, at blackvegfest.org. And you can also put blackvegfest.com, it'll get you to the same website and our IG also. Uh, that's where I'm doing my most uh, work. Uh, right now in, in movement space. And also um, I'm part of a collective called North Bronx Collective. Um, you'll see uh, a lot of the work that I've been doing there as well. So, you know, but you can also find me on shows like this, you know, work that um, folks are, are doing to um, continue conversations um, and ask broad, hard, uh, but necessary questions. And also in street. you know, <laughs> I'm here in New York City right around all the time. <laughs> so yeah this is what's happening
0: come visit the bronx yeah well it's been an honor to have you as a guest on sentientist conversations thank you again laurie kim and stay in touch
1: thank you so much jamie i really appreciate it so much wonderful thank
0: you thanks thanks for listening you're helping to normalize rational compassionate thinking don't forget to subscribe leave us some stars or a review You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online
1: community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?